Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my wife is here. She's here to check on me to make sure I don't uh, uh, go off into some bad doctrine. <laughs> I heard uh, a preacher start his message. He said, this elderly gentleman and his wife would go to an airplane show and uh, they would uh, have all these tricks in the air. And so he wanted to go up in the plane and experience that. And uh, so he told his wife when they went the first time, he said, you know, I'd like to do that. She said, well, it's going to cost $50, and you know $50 is $50. Oh, I guess so. So... Uh, they kept going year after year, and finally, as he got older, he said, Honey, he said, if I don't go up this time, he said, I may never, I may never live to see another opportunity. And so the pilot heard their conversation, and he realized that there was a difference in the fella wanting to go and his wife not wanting him to go. And so he came over to him and he said, you know, I know it costs $50, but he said, I'll tell you what, if you go in the plane, both of you, and you don't say anything when I do the tricks, if you don't complain or anything, it won't cost you anything. So they went up in the plane and uh, they did all the tricks in the air and when they came down, uh, the pilot came over, the elderly gentleman, and he said, uh, you, you did it well, and you don't have to pay anything. He said, uh, where's your wife? He said, well, she started to complain. And he said, I opened the door. <laughs> and you know $50 is $50. My wife and I have been married 60 years, and she wants you to know that she is eight years younger than I. But the Bible says train up a child in the way it should go, and it's really worked. I've uh, talked to Marco and several of the teachers, and I've asked them to compare this semester with last year, and all of them have been in agreement that this has been an upgrade this year. And uh, so as I sit back there every once in a while in chapel, I notice the attention you give to the Word of God, and that's encouraging. You know, I believe this, and I preach this for years. If you're not looking, you're not listening. And if anybody sits there and looks down at their lap the whole time, they're not listening. And so I can say for the most part, uh, it's been wonderful and an encouragement for me to watch you during the chapels. All right, take your Bible, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 
beginning with verse 1, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars, and is born in his patience, and for my namesake is labored and is not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The name Ephesus means desirable. Ephesus was a flourishing commercial center on the western side of Asia Minor. It had a large artificial harbor which could accommodate the greatest ships in the world. Therefore, it became one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. The Greeks conquered the city and they dedicated it to their goddess Diana. As a matter of fact, they built the largest temple in the world to the Greek goddess Diana, which became a center of worship and adoration for the rest of the world. In Acts chapter 19, Paul came to Ephesus and he found a group of John, uh, John the Baptist's disciples and he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, who's the Holy Spirit? We haven't heard about him. You see, John's message was looking forward to the coming of Christ and dying on the cross, the Lamb of God. And so they had not heard of the finished work of Christ. So Paul goes on and he uh, gives them the finished work of Christ. These disciples of John the Baptist became disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul labored there for three years. They had a marvelous beginning. So many people were turning from idols and uh, receiving Christ that Demetrius, the silversmith, got the people up in arms like our modern-day uh, protests that we see around America today. And for the space of a long time, they cried out, Great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. Great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. Well, Paul stayed there for three years. After that, Timothy became what we would call an interim pastor. But the main pastor was John. John pastored for 30 to 40 years. At the end of toward of his ministry there, he was boiled in hot seething oil by the emperor Domitian, banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of the Revelation. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject the desirable church. This church was not only desirable in its name, but it was desirable in its nature. 
Now, I want to pick out four things from our text to notice about the desirable church. First of all, the direction of the church. Now, notice verse 1. He writes to the angel or the messenger, which is the pastor of the church. The pastor is responsible for the direction of the church. Interestingly, he did not write to the deacons. He did not write to the Sunday school teachers or the trustees. He wrote to the pastors. Now, the Bible says that he holds the pastors in his right hand. The right hand is a place of authority in the Bible. 21 times in the Bible, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's the place of authority. And the pastor has a place of authority. Listen to what God says about the definition of the pastor. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders that rule, rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So the word rule, a place of authority. Again, Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Remember them that have the rule over you. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. I was preaching years ago in Indiana and uh, summer had just started and the kids were home from college. And I was preaching on a Sunday morning. After the Sunday morning service, a young lady came up to me who was going to a Christian college and she started criticizing her pastor. I said, wait a minute. I want to ask you two questions. Is your pastor guilty of theological error? She said, no, sir. I said, he, is he involved in immorality? She said, no, sir. I said, then you don't have anything to talk to me about your pastor. I said, those are the only grounds upon which you can criticize him. And I said, listen, this man has asked me to preach for him. I will not be a part of his being criticized in my presence and my bite the hand that feeds me. Years ago, uh, I was just uh, married and we were members of a church in Clarksburg, West Virginia, Emanuel Baptist Church. And uh, so one night as we were home from meetings, uh, the chairman of the deacons called me and he said, Brother Comfort, are you going to be home tonight? I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, several of us deacons would like to talk to you. I said, fine, come on over to the house. So as uh, I hung up the phone, I said, honey, have I done anything worthy of church discipline? Why do you think they're coming over to see me? Well, they knocked on the door, I opened the door, invited them in. And there was a casual conversation to start the night. But after a while, they started criticizing my pastor. And they went on about 15 minutes harangue of my pastor. I, and they said, Brother Comfort, what do you think? And I said, men, you don't want to know what I think. I said, what I'm going to tell you is what I believe 
the Bible teaches. I said, I don't think you deacons are responsible for the direction this church. And I said, I don't appreciate your sitting in my home and criticizing the man of God. I said, when my wife and I joined Emmanuel Baptist Church, we placed ourselves under the authority of our pastor. And I will not be a part of criticizing the man of God that is my ultimate authority in the church. And I said, furthermore, when you gentlemen leave, I'm getting on the phone and I'm calling my pastor and I'm telling him everything you've said about him. The right hand is a place of authority. But also, ladies and gentlemen, it is a place of responsibility. Now, I have preached in over 1,600 uh, extended meetings in 62 years. And I have seen some pastors who get the idea, I like the authority, but I don't like the responsibility. Now, preacher boys, I want you to listen carefully. Uh, I could get on a soapbox about this very easily. I am bothered by Christian colleges who make fundamental Baptist preachers superstars who preach on Sunday, they're gone all week long, they come back on Saturday and they preach on Sunday and they're gone again the next week. I had a man who is now in heaven who pastored in Shelby, North Carolina. He said, Brother Comfort, I have been pastor of my church for over 30 years. He said, in over 30 years, are you listening? My people have never known a real pastor. What a tragedy. I would hate to have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and say, God, you call me to pastor, and my people never knew a real pastor. It's a place of responsibility. There's a time when that pastor sees somebody in his church who's drifting away from the Lord. He's got to be available to try to bring them back. There comes a time when a family loses a member by death. He's got to be available to comfort them. There comes a time when a preacher hears about somebody in his church who's diagnosed with cancer and only has a short time to live. He's got to be available. It's a place of responsibility, but I like this. Number three, it's a place of exaltation. Now notice what he calls the preachers. He calls them his stars, his stars. D.L. Moody said, if God calls you to preach, don't stoop to being a king. And that's the truth, ladies and gentlemen and young people. The most wonderful thing in all the world is to be called of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I've never understood how that because of a 40, 45 minute message, somebody comes and gets saved, his life is transformed, his wife gets saved, his children get saved, they go off to Bible college, they go into the ministry. And we have seen that time and time and time again. There's not enough money in the world to replace the joy 
of being God's star. Years ago, I preached many times in Kansas City, Carl Herbster. And uh, he had two of the Kansas City Royals members of his church. There was a young man by the name of Jerry Terrell who was a utility infielder but an outstanding Christian. I have been out with Jerry Terrell and I've heard people say, Jerry, you're going to resign next year to play again? And he'd say, well, I'm praying about it, waiting on the leadership of the Lord. Well, Daryl Porter in in time was traded to the Kansas City Royals. Daryl Porter had been on drugs. And so when he came to the Royals, he said, I want a room with Jerry Terrell because Jerry Terrell can help me. Well, Jerry Terrell led uh, Daryl Porter to Christ. And uh, Daryl became an outstanding Christian. I remember out playing golf with him one day, and he said, Brother Comfort, you know athletic stars are very temporary. They flicker a while, and then they're gone. But Daniel 12 and verse 3 says, But they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And he said, I was down at the Royal Stadium on Saturday, and uh, Yankees were playing the Royals. Don Mattingly at that, t- that time was the first baseman for the Yankees. He said, when I came in the stands early, he said, I saw them crowded around uh, Don Mattingly, and he was signing autographs and uh, shirts and baseballs. And uh, he said, out of the corner of my eye, I saw Tom Seaver walking down the grandstands. Tom Seaver's in the Hall of Fame. He won 311 games in, in the majors. And he said, you know what? He'd been out of baseball for five years, but nobody recognized him. As they saw Don Mattingly, he was the center of their attention. Out of baseball for five years, nobody recognized Tom Seaver. Young man, the most wonderful thing in all the world is to be called God's star. Don't be satisfied with being the world star. So number one, we've noticed the direction of the church. Then number two, I want you to notice the discernment of the church. Now in verse 2 it says they labored. Verse 3 they labored. That word means they worked to the point of physical exhaustion. That's the same word that is used in Matthew 9 and verse 37. The harvest is plenteous but the labors are few. Again John 4 and verse 38, Jesus told his disciples, I send you to reap whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye entered into their labors. So he was saying, I send you to be a laborer, but you haven't even tried. Work to the point of physical exhaustion. When I was at Highland Park, Uh, preaching for Dr. Lee Robertson. He told me about a man in his church who was Dr. E.C. Haskell, a dentist. And one night he said in a meeting like this, he got under conviction. And he said, God, 
I keep my dentist office open six days a week to make money for me. He said, I'm promising you that I'm closing my office down one day every week and spend that entire day in soul winning. You know what Dr. Robertson said? He said, in one year, Dr. E.C. Haskell brought 200 people down the aisles of Highland Park Baptist Church that he had led to Jesus Christ. They labored. Brother uh, Spencer and I have preached for one of our graduates who was in South Carolina. And Brother Spencer had the same attitude I did. He's not going to be very, there very long because those people think they pay him to win the souls. They pay him to do all the work. And now he's not there anymore. But no church is a great church because of one man. There has to be those who will labor to the point of physical exhaustion. They labored, but they could not bear them which are evil. They practiced church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells several areas where church discipline needs to be exercised. By the way, young people, church discipline is not to exert our authority. It's not to kick a person while he's down. It is to restore the fallen brother, Galatians 6 and verse 1. I talked to a man on the phone several months ago who had exercised church discipline for the first time in over 50 years. No pastor had ever exercised church discipline. I said, how did your people respond? Unanimously, they agreed that it was biblical. And a church is not a good church if it does not exercise church discipline. It said they could not bear them which are evil. Number three, they were intolerant of error. It says they tried them but said they were apostles and were not and had found them liars. Now you go down to verse six and he says, and they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans which also I hate. Now the word Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words, nikao laos, to conquer the people. I was reared in a church like that, where the priest was up here, I was down here. I could not read the Bible for myself. I could not understand it. I had to go through the church to understand it. God says he hates that type of thing. Now, I want to say I've met some Baptist preachers, Brother Spencer, who are engaged in that Nicolaitan mentality. They think they're up here and everybody else is down here. For years, I would tell our students as they come in, we have no superiors in this church. We have no inferiors in uh, this school, rather. Uh, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we all are on the same level, just sinners saved by the grace of God. He hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, he says, Now when I depart, grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. So they were spiritually intolerant of error. But I want you to go down to verse 4. 
And here we see the deficiency of the church. He says, nevertheless, I have someone against thee because thou hast left thy first love. How many of you remember the night you got saved? Would you raise your hand? I remember that night. My brother got saved in the military. Uh, If there were any people that I would have said would never have gotten saved, it would have been my brother. My brother was so bad that the bad boys in the high school didn't want to run around with him. Uh, He came home from school and he thought I was a punching bag. He... uh, uh, and I'd say, Bill, you better get your life straightened out. You're going to wind up in a mess someday. But Billy was in Panama City, Florida, on his way downtown to get drunk with one of his buddies. And they passed by an outdoor field, and there they saw a man preaching. And my brother told his buddy, he said, let's sit down and listen to what that preacher has to say. And so the preacher preached a simple salvation message. And at the end of the message, he said, now I'm going to close in prayer. And if you'd like to know your sins are forgiven, you'd like to know you're on your way to heaven, he said, come down and talk to me. So after he got through praying, my brother told his buddy, he said, I'm going to go down and talk to that preacher. And my brother went down with tears in his eyes and he said, preacher, he said, you said that I could have my sins forgiven. He said, I got a whole lot of them. Now, my brother at 17 joined the military to get out of the house. And my dad had already taken my brother to places of prostitution. So Billy had tried everything in the book. And he said, preacher, you said I could know I was on my way to heaven. He said, I'd like to know that. So Billy got down on his knees and asked the Lord to save him. He got up a new creature in Jesus Christ. He didn't go back to the dorm uh, or downtown and get drunk. He went back to his barracks and he wrote his little brother and his mom and dad. And he said, Mom and Dad, Ronnie, he said, I've been born again. And I want you to have what I have. Billy came home on furlough. Nine out of ten days he preached to me. Finally, to get him off my back, I prayed a prayer. But I wasn't saved. Two weeks later, Billy Graham came to Asheville, North Carolina. I sat on the back row of the balcony of uh, the city auditorium. I had sung dozens of times in that city auditorium, seated 30,000 people, and the place was filled. And the preacher got up and said, there's a young man in here tonight who's God's popularity. And he started talking about that. I said, who told him I was here? He said, why don't you swallow your pride? I said, I can If I do, my friends will see me go. It'll inhibit my climb up the social ladder. He said, if you'll take that first step, you'll have no trouble with the second. I did. I went downstairs. I know that personal worker was glad to get rid of me. Why? I cried all over him. For the first time in my life, I saw my sins flashing through my mind like a neon sign. 
and I was born again. The next day, I went down to Asheville. It was the fall of the year, last of November. I never realized the leaves were so beautiful that fell from the trees. I never realized that the sunset was so beautiful. And my New Testament became my constant companion. When I would go to school in the morning and get on the bus, I would be reading my New Testament. When I went to basketball practice, if I were on the floor, my testament was on the bench. When I got back to the bench, my testament was in my hand. I remember the first Easter I was saved. I sat down and I read 28 chapters of Matthew at one sitting. I'd remember coming home from basketball practice, sitting on the porch, reading my Bible. And my stepmother would say, Ronnie, supper's ready. I'd say, Mama, I'm almost through this chapter. Can I finish this chapter? I would sit in services like this, and I don't care what the preacher preached. I would get under conviction. If he'd have said, there's a young man in here tonight drinking too much Kool-Aid, man, I'd have been at the altar. Because I was so sensitive to sin in my life. And when he'd say, if you'd like for me to pray for you, my hand would shoot up. When I'd see somebody come down the aisle to get saved, it was like getting saved all over again. And I remembered my brother coming home from the military uh, for a, a furlough. Well, at this time, really, he was uh, out of the military. He went to Hugh Pyle's church in Panama City, Florida, and they started praying that instead of Billy being in for four years, that God would get him out after two years uh, because he wanted to study for the ministry. So that happened. And Billy came home after one semester being at Bob Jones. And he had me out on the streets with the wordless book, Winning Young People to Christ. And uh, we'd have street meetings. We were in a street meeting in Elmira. And uh, a policeman came and he stopped us. He said, wait a minute. You can't do this. You've got to have a permit to do this. So you cannot do this until you go down to the city hall and get a permit. Across the street from where we were preaching was the Elmira Rescue Mission. Al Shaw was the superintendent. He had seen what the police had done in stopping the street meeting. So he came over and he said, boys, he said, I've heard you preach. He said, I like it. I like it. He said, that's the kind of preaching that got me saved as a worthless drunkard. He said, and now I'm superintendent of the rescue mission. He said, I'll tell you what, you can't preach on the street corner, but you can preach in that rescue mission. He said, Billy, why don't you preach for three weeks every night? And Ronnie, you do the singing. After three weeks of that meeting, Al Shaw called me to the platform. And he said, Ron, you're my Timothy. You're my son in the faith. He said the offerings for the three weeks of meetings have been $150. He said, I want you to take this $150 and enroll in Bob Jones Academy. I was a sophomore in high school at that time. 
And I came to my dad and I said, Dad, God saved me. He's called me to preach. Now from 7 to 15, I sang in the nightclub stage radio and TV. On a Sunday night, instead of being in a service, I was in uh, a nightclub singing somewhere. Always had to be accompanied by my dad or my grandfather because I was underage. But I said, Dad, God saved me. He's called me to preach. And if you'll let me go to Bob Jones Academy, I'll go. He said, Son, you're a fool. He said, Everything we've worked for all of your life is down the drain. Why in the world do you have to go down there to school? There are good schools here in Elmira, New York. I said, Dad, all I can tell you is God saved me. He's called me to preach. And that's all in the past. I don't care about that anymore. He said, if you go, I will not send you one penny. The three years I was in the academy, my dad did not send me one penny. The four years I was in college, one weekend dad broke his word and he sent me $5. In seven years, he sent me $5. But I remember as a sophomore in high school, 16, 17 years old, sitting in that chapel and I saw that old man, by the way, he was younger at that time than I am right now. But I saw that old man traipse across the platform. He would put his Bible over the lights that would show him the chapel was over. He never paid any attention to those lights. And uh, you know what? That old man put some fire in my bones that has never gone out. And as a 16 to 17 year old boy, my attitude was, I don't care about designer clothing. I don't care about automobiles. I don't care about brick houses. Live or die, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when I got ready to go to Bob Jones, my buddy that I was working with gave me a Schofield Bible. The best gift that I'd ever had given to me. You know what I did with that Schofield Bible? I hugged it to my chest. I went to bed with that Schofield Bible that night. And oh, living for Christ and preaching the gospel was the only thing that mattered to me. But listen carefully. Many times I've had to ask myself this question, Ron, have you left your first love? And I've had to conclude that I've left my first love. David said in Psalm 40 in verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. That's the first love. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, As a heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul searcheth for God, yea, for the living God. That's the first love. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's the first love. Job 23 and verse 12, Job said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have a policy in my life I have tried to keep for many, many years. No Bible, no breakfast. Why? I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
That's the first love. Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. That's the first love. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But those things which were gained to me, those I counted lost for Jesus Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That is the first love. Now, God is not faulting you for leaving your first love. He's faulting you for not getting back to it. We've noticed the direction of the church, the discernment of the church, the deficiency of the church, and finally, the dilemma of the church. Notice, please, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Look this way, please. God says you've left your first love. What are you to do about it? Get back to the place where you were when you got saved. I remember preaching in Anderson, Indiana, and a young lady came down the aisle. I was preaching along this line. And she started weeping. She stayed there. The pastor got up. He closed the service. She was still on her knees weeping. They started to put out the lights. She said, I'm going to stay here until God renews the joy of my salvation. After one hour, she got up and she said, oh, praise God. He's renewed the joy of my salvation. Have you left your first love? Last time I preached this message, I gave a ninefold a checklist for leaving your first love. And a man came to me and he said, I'm putting those nine things on a board and I'm putting them on my office wall and I'm going to check that checklist to see every day if I've left my first love. Now let me give you a checklist for leaving your first love. May I encourage you to go the fly leaf of your Bible and put these nine things down quickly. Number one, checklist for leaving your first love. When a man leaves his first love, there'll be neglect for God's word. Neglect for God's word. Invariably, when somebody is backslidden, you ask them this question, are you in your Bible? And they'll say, no. If you've left the Bible, then you've left the Son of God. Number two, you'll have little desire for secret prayer. When is the last time you got alone with the Lord and you said, Lord, I didn't get alone with you to ask you for anything. I just got alone with you to tell you how much I love you. I believe the heart of God is heavy to hear his children just come and tell him how much they love him. Number three, there'll be a growing fondness for worldly pleasures. 
and material things. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right, number four. And this is what I'm afraid for students at Ambassador Baptist College. There'll be a spiritual satisfaction with the plateau upon which you're residing. Did you get that? The church at Laodicea said we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you know what I'm afraid? Some of you come to chapel and you say, I've heard it all. What else can I hear that's different? And you have that kind of attitude. There were some semesters when we had fellows at this altar for chapel saying, God, speak to my heart. I remember the first time I preached for Dr. Lee Robertson. It was a Wednesday night. He'd been in the hospital, had a, a throat problem. And so I preached on Wednesday night. I looked over my shoulder. He was writing something. And I thought, well, he's taking notes for his message on Sunday morning. I preached there dozens of times. And every time I preached there, I'd see him taking notes on my messages. When he would have an evangelist preach, he'd say, folks, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm not having this evangelist only for your benefit. He said, I'm having him for my benefit because I need it. I need what he has to say. And you know, I've been bothered. Now listen carefully. I've been bothered as I have sat back there and I have seen a student with their heads down the whole chapel very few times lifting their head and looking at the preacher, head down. And I believe it's this attitude. I don't want to be bothered. I'm satisfied with the plateau upon which I'm residing. Spiritual satisfaction. Number five, petty excuses for neglecting God's house. Petty excuses for neglecting God's house. Number six, tendency to be discontent and fault-finding. You know what God says about being around an angry person who's a griper? Get away from him. Make no friendship with an angry man, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare under thy soul. So stay away from gripers. They've left their first love. Number seven, a decreasing anxiety for the souls of men. I remember five Saturdays in a row I went out on visitation when I was in college. Five Saturdays in a row I didn't lead anybody to Christ. You know what I did? I went back to that prayer room I got down on my knees and I wept and I said God if you don't use me I don't want to live take me home but there was a time when it didn't excite me as much when people came down the aisle to get saved 
decreasing anxiety for the souls of men. Number four, uh, number eight, an insensitivity to sin. Did you get that? Someone said, well, I saw this film. They only use God's name in vain four times. Get a brain. If they use it one time, turn it off. I heard Phil Schuler say the first time he saw the mural cigar smoking liver, he said it made him irate. He said he put his fingers to his lips and spit and hit her dead center in the forehead. He said, the next time I saw it, it didn't bother me as badly. He said, and finally it got to the place where it didn't bother me at all. I want to ask you, does it bother you when people use God's name in vain like it did when you got saved? All right, number nine. There'll be a casual attitude about spiritual things. Come as you are, leave as you came. You turn on the sports channels and you'll see the announcers that are sharply dressed and they're ambassadors for athletics. And then I turn over to the religious channels and I see a man who says he's a preacher and he looks like a reject from a rescue mission. Listen, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you ought to wear a tie every time you go to church, but you ought to be neat. You're going to God's house. Would you go to the see the President of the United States dressed like a hobo? Casual attitude. Well, it doesn't matter if we're late to church. It's only God, and God doesn't matter. Casual attitude toward the things of God. You know what he says? If you don't get back to your first love, I'm going to remove your candlestick. What did he tell the church at Laodicea? He said, because you're spiritually satisfied, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I wonder this morning, are you satisfied where you are spiritually or have you left your first love? Now, in closing, I'm not a good Christian. I'm not proud of all that I do. I'm, I'm ashamed of how little I do. My wife puts me to shame. She's the best Christian I know. But the thing that I want more than anything in life is to be used of God. I was preaching our first mission field trip in Kenya, Africa. Changed my life. And... Uh, when I came back, I said, Lord, our team is going to spend two months on mission fields around the world at our own expense. Why? Because I could see more people saved in one night accidentally in a third world country than I could in three months in revival meetings in America. And uh, we were with a man who had started dozens of churches in Kenya. But he fell into immorality. He did right. He got right with his churches in Kenya. Came back to eastern Pennsylvania. Got right with his church in eastern Pennsylvania. I was there in the meeting and I watched him. Soul winner now. 
ride, uh, driving a bus, bringing young people to church. And the last night of the meeting, as I was signing Bibles, I looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw him standing over there. And so he waited till everybody had gone. And then he came up to me and he put his arms around my neck and he began to weep. And he said, Brother Ron, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Tears coming down his face. He said, there are many people watching your life. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And I thought, I know what he's thinking. He's thinking I've disqualified myself from being a missionary because I left my first love. And I don't want to live if I can't be used of God. The desire of my life is to be used of God. How about you?